Romans chapter 7. You may have to bear with me as I stop and take a drink here now and then. My voice <coughs> is just, uh, I, get the, I get the impression that it might give out on me at any moment. But I, I, I think we'll make it through. Amen. Last week we finished the first section of chapter 7. We finished it with a comparison between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And I told you then that the rest of chapter 7 will describe what life in the flesh looks like, what it is. And then chapter 8 is is the point where Paul turns his attention to what it means to live in the spirit. And all of chapter 8 will deal with life in the spirit. However, before Paul begins to elaborate on the whole idea of living in the flesh, he first makes one final statement about the law. The law has been central to our discussion throughout the book of Romans up to now. And before we turn towards this this uh, this study of this look at what it means to live in the flesh as opposed to what it means to live in the spirit, first Paul wants to make one final statement about the law. And so this next passage that we're going to look at deals with the law. Up to this point in the book, Paul has painted the law in a less than favorable light. Amen. We have found out that the law is unable to justify us as sinners. We have found out that the law is closely associated with sin. We found out that as believers in Jesus Christ, when we have been set free from sin, we've been set free from the law. Amen. So now Paul takes a moment to defend, if you will, the integrity of the law. That's what these next few verses are about. Paul makes the case that the problem is not with the law. The problem is with sin. And sin is personified in this passage that we're going to introduce this morning as a domineering evil tyrant. We've heard that over and over again throughout our study of the book of Romans. Sin is personified as that that master, that slave master that abuses us. And it abuses and exploits the law in order to accomplish its negative purpose. The sin distorts the law. It uses the law for a purpose much lower than the purpose for which God has instituted the law. Consider the Garden of Eden. God established a law in the garden. The law was that Adam and Eve could not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That law was placed there for their own protection, for their good. It was intended to preserve them. If you eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. That was the truth. But the very law that God established to protect Adam and Eve is exactly what Satan used to plant the seeds of doubt in Adam and Eve's heart and incite them to violate the law. He suggested to Eve that God only restricted that particular tree from them because he was keeping the best for himself. God was holding back some good thing from Adam and Eve. If you eat of the tree, you'll become like God, and he doesn't want that. You'll have the same knowledge of sin, of good and evil that God has. You'll be like him, and God's trying to keep you from that potential that lives within you to be as good as he is. 
And so sin takes that law and it twists it to encourage sin, encourage sin as if God was holding back some good thing from Adam and Eve. He was keeping the best for himself. Paul's point in this passage is that because sin, just because sin used the law to incite sin does not mean that the law was a bad thing. Amen. The law was put there for a good purpose. The law was put there to preserve, to protect. And he'll even go so far, and we won't get to this verse today, but he'll even go so far as to say that because of its relationship to God, the law is holy, righteous, and good. That's the law. Amen. Now, it has been abused. It's been used wrongly. Sin has taken occasion of the law to abuse us and to trap us in sin. But the law itself, the law is holy. It's righteous. It is good. Amen. So the passage is verses 7 through 13. It's going to take me two weeks to cover it. I'll cover half of it this morning. Next Sunday morning, I will cover the other half. Amen. The Sunday after that, we'll have a guest minister on Sunday morning. Brother Todd Johnson from Springfield, Missouri, home missionary, will be preaching for us on Sunday morning, the Sunday after that. Amen? Romans chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading with verse 7, read through verse 13. We're only going to get to verse 9 this morning, but I'm going to, like I did with the last passage, I'm going to give you the whole passage, and then we'll, we'll deal with just the portion we're going to cover today. It says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Give me a round of applause. I said that right. You don't know how many times I practiced that. Amen. Concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Amen. So we're going to get verses 7 through 9 this morning. We'll complete that passage next Sunday morning. The first verse again said this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Same kind of question that Paul asks in verse 6. He starts with a question, and then he answers it right off the bat. No, God forbid. Nay, I, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So he starts with, Is the law sin? And he answers emphatically, No, the law is not sin. The question 
may seem valid to the reader. Indeed, it seemed valid enough for Paul to address it. And the main reason is that we spent much of this letter establishing the fact that the law did not give us power over sin. And we've even gone so far as to argue that the law actually aroused sinful lust within us. And in the context of all the negative things that we've said about the law, it seems reasonable then to ask the question, is the law in league with sin? Is the law, is it a part of the whole sin problem? If it arouses sin, then isn't it just as bad as sin? That's the question. And the point of the passage is to establish the fact that that is not true in any sense. Amen. The law came from God. And it is good for the purpose for which God established it. Just because Paul has rejected the law as a means of salvation does not rob the law of all of its value. It has intrinsic value as a teacher of righteousness. The law declares... For the entire world to read the moral standards of God. The law teaches us what pleases God. It establishes the character of God. And that is something that anyone who desires to live for God needs to know. They need to know what pleases God. They need to know what upsets God. They need to know what sin is. And the law tells us what sin is. To quote David Bernard, the law of Moses reveals the nature, existence, power, and result of sin. It shows us our sinfulness and it demonstrates our need for salvation. And because of that, it is a very important part of God's redemptive plan for humanity. The law explains sin to us. The law gives us the knowledge of what sin is. Without the law, we would not know what kind of actions are sinful. We wouldn't know what God forbids. Without the law, we wouldn't understand the wrongfulness of those sinful acts. The law teaches us the wrongfulness of sin. Not only that, the law includes penalties for sin. And through those penalties, it gives us an understanding of how dreadfully wrong certain acts are. Some actions under the law demanded death immediately. Some things were so bad that God said, if you do this, the price is death and it is immediate. You, you, right, they ought to pick up stones right where they are and stone you to death right then and right there. That gives you a real strong statement of the wrongfulness of that kind of action. It gives you some insight into the character of God. It gives you some insight into God's standard of what is right and what is wrong. And that's the strength of the law. We learn that right and wrong isn't something that we created in our mind. Right and wrong isn't some philosophical idea that's handed down from generation to generation. Right and wrong is God's standard. God has 
establish that which is right and that which is good and that which is wrong and sinful. And the law establishes our understanding that there is a higher moral code that we answer to. Really, we, we abide by the law of the land, but the law of the land doesn't, isn't, doesn't take precedent over the law of God. There is a higher code that we live by. The law of the land may say, it's okay for me to kill a man, but the law of God said, I don't kill a man. Amen? The law of the land may say it's okay for me to cheat in certain areas. I don't know, but but the law of God doesn't say that's okay. There's a higher moral law that I answer to, and the law of God establishes that. It helps me to understand that, that, that there is this, this is not a subject of human reasoning. This is not a subject of, of something that I come up with. This is not something we can sit down together. Somebody once said, you know, what if God had allowed the Ten Commandments to go to a committee of, of the Israelites before engraved in stone? you got to figure the first one that would have been gone is thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, that, that just doesn't fit somewhere in the paradigm of human thinking. That's not how God's law works. Amen. God's law says that's wrong, and it doesn't matter if as a society we decide that's okay. It doesn't matter if as a society we decide that's acceptable. It's still wrong according to God's law. Amen. So law establishes what sin is. Sin is an affront to God. And law establishes the wrongness of sin. And it derives that from the character of God. The law then teaches us some very important things that we need to know about God. It details his moral character for us. We find out from the law that God looks at life as a sacred thing. Amen. It's not something for us to abuse. It's not something for us to to take from somebody else. It's a sacred thing to God. We learn that from the law. We learn what God thinks and how he feels about certain human actions. We, We get an idea of the character of God. We learn what we need to know about God from the law. But Paul says, I would not have ever known sin if it wasn't for the law. The knowledge of sin, that knowledge of what is right and what is wrong, I learned that from the law. And and, and Paul's not just talking about intellectual knowledge. He goes on to relate his knowledge of sin to an experience. He said, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had, and then he goes into a real world example. I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. He, he knew lust because the law told him what lust was. In other words, Paul said, I might have never known that it was wrong to strongly desire that which was not mine. And that which I could not possess. To covet that which belongs to my neighbor. I may have never known that that was wrong if the law had not said to me, Thou shalt not covet. But once I read the law, then I I knew that the impulse of my flesh to yearn for that which is not mine, that desire to covet, that's wrong. I know it because the law said it. Amen? Now I recognize that that desire is sin. So so I didn't just gain from the law 
an abstract knowledge of sin. I actually experienced sin because of the law. The law gave me a personal conscience of the fact that I am a sinner and I need the grace of God. The law defined sin for me and it caused me to realize that I am personally guilty of sin in the presence of God. That's the higher function of the law. The function of the law was not to cause sin, although the sin nature used the law to cause sin. The function of the law was to cause me to realize I am a sinner and I need the grace of God. I need God's mercy. I need his help. I can't do this on my own. I need the power of God. I need to know what it is to live in the spirit because when I live in the flesh, I'm a sinner. Verse 8 says, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. I got it right again. For without the law, sin was dead. So in theory, the law, with its death penalty, should have motivated me not to sin. But Paul says that sin took occasion of the law, took occasion by the commandment. The sin nature in us used the law as an opportunity to encourage us to sin. It wrought in me, Paul said that, and I'm going to say that word one more time, all manner of concupiscence. Now I'm going to tell you what it means, and I'm going to quit using the word. Amen. The word means lust or evil desire. So the law wrought in me all manner of evil desires. How does that work? The law didn't create the evil desires in me. They were already there. The sin nature takes care of that for me. I was born with a sin nature and that evil desire, that desire to sin, that was already in me. The law, however, revealed that desire to me. It made me aware, not just of the desires, but of their sinfulness. An example that Paul used, I may have desired that which was my neighbor's, which I could not have for a long time before I ever understood that that's sin. And so the law made me aware of the desire and made me aware of its sinfulness. And by accentuating both the desire to sin and the forbidden nature of sin, the law then provoked me to sin. Now, provoking sin is not the law's purpose, but that's how sin takes advantage of the law. We talked a little bit about this last week or the week before. It's the forbidden fruit syndrome. I talked about Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 17 that tells us stolen water is sweet. The idea is there, there's something about the sin nature within us that delights in rebellion. Water that is freely given is not anywhere near as sweet as water that had to be stolen. There's, now, it's all water. And it all tastes the same pretty much. Amen? You can go pay three fifty a bottle for that stuff, and I do too. But when you get right down to the root of it, it's all the same thing. 
It's water. Amen. But the, the, the proverb says it, it's sweeter because it was stolen. The prohibition of the law not to steal had the effect of causing the object of the prohibition, the water that was stolen, to become fixed in the imagination until the mind believes that it's sweeter than the, the water that I have. Now, I used the example last time of the cow that stands as close as he can to the fence and reaches through his little neck through the barbed wire, big neck through the barbed wire, to get into the grass that's on the other side. There's no difference between the grass on one side of the fence and the grass on the other side of the fence. It's just something about that other grass that's more attractive because it's on the other side of the line. It just seems sweeter. It seems to taste better. It seems to be a better thing. And so the prohibition of the law has the effect of causing us to become fixated on that which has been uh, turned away from us or refused to us, that which has been prohibited. And so the sin nature then uses the prohib prohibition of the thing to make that thing that has been prohibited to seem to be better simply by the fact that we've been denied it. Again, we use the tree in the Garden of Eden as an example. The fruit of the tree was indeed deadly. And sin used the fact that the fruit was prohibited to make it to be something that was to be desired. Eve looked at the fruit and it appealed to the senses. Because of the prohibition, it seemed to be taste. It just looked like... You know, it just looks like it tastes better than anything else in the garden. It, it, before she ever tastes of it, it, it looks like it's sweeter than anything. Why? Because it's the one thing I'm not allowed to have. It looks sweeter than everything else because it's the one thing that has been denied to me. It has all the appearances of being the most desirable fruit in the garden. And all of that is accentuated by the fact that it's been forbidden to me. Now I've got to point out that this increased desire for the prohibited thing is not law's fault. The law isn't guilty of that increased desire. Sin this is what Paul said, sin taking occasion by the law, by the commandments. Sin takes advantage of the law. Sin is the culprit here. It is personified in our lives as that slithering serpent that keeps drawing our attention back to the thing that we were restricted from. That's the voice of sin. That voice that, that, that waits there and draws you in and says, haven't you looked? This tree is good. It's sweet. That's the voice of sin in your life. It appeals to us. It takes occasion of the law to make those things which are sinful to seem to be attractive. The, the language used for taking occasion We've seen it before earlier in the book of Romans. It, it has to do with, as a military connotation. It has to do with a beachhead or a starting point for an attack. If you'll remember way back when we first introduced the idea of the sin nature into the discussion of Romans, we spent most of a Sunday morning talking about how that the sin nature provides sin 
a foothold in our life. It provides a beachhead, as it were, a safe haven from which sin can launch its attacks against us. When Paul uses that kind of language, he represents sin as the enemy of our soul. And that enemy is using the law as its beachhead in our life. It's using the law as a launching pad from which to attack us. That That is the sense in which sin takes occasion of the law. It seizes on the commandment that forbids us to sin and uses that as an instrument to provoke us to sin. Now let me say this before we move on. This whole discussion reveals to us how Satan works. It is a pattern that we first see in the Garden of Eden and then we see repeated over and over and over again. Satan would twist any commandment of God in our lives in order to cause us to see it as a negative instead of a positive. When God gives you commandments, when God gives you instructions, he's not doing it to your detriment. He's doing it to your good. But the sin nature causes us to look at that which, which well, the preacher said you can't do that. And twist it to make it something to be desired instead of something that the preacher was using the word of God to try to protect you from. And that's the way sin works. Sin takes that which was prohibited, that where, where, where the Bible draws a line, where the man of God draws a line and says you shouldn't go there. And since it's looky there, he's trying to keep you from that which is good. He's trying to keep you from the better stuff. He's trying to keep you from the good stuff in life. All the good stuff, we know that's all sin. That's all restricted. You're not allowed to do all, all the fun that people have. You're not allowed to participate. It's not about restricting you from fun. It's about protecting you from harm. But the way sin works is it, it takes that commandment of God and causes us to see it as a negative instead of as a positive. It, it twists it. God's looking out for us. He's got our best interest at heart. But sin twists the admonitions of God that are intended to preserve us into attacks that are intended to harm us. Sin convinces us that somehow God's restriction is keeping us from some good thing. Let me give a real world example. As, as parents... We love our children, and we protect them from danger. So we caution them, don't play in the road. We lived in Bono. We lived on a very, very busy road, very dangerous road. And it was extremely important that I get into my kids' heads how, how critical it is. You don't play in the road. You don't get out there. You don't go past the ditch. You don't get out there in the road because the street is a dangerous place to play. But there's something about the nature, human nature, that the moment that we make the street a forbidden place to play, the sin nature, that inherent nature of rebellion begins to look at the street as the best place to play. You know, you can ride your bicycle a whole lot better out in the street than you can in the driveway. And it's a lot nicer, smoother surface for playing with your cars and stuff. And, and the sin nature starts to see the street as a desirable place. And so even though we are 
trying to protect our children, even though we're trying to shelter them, it gets twisted in the mind of the child, so the child thinks we're trying to keep them away from the best place to play. That's how sin works. It interprets every commandment of God as taking away my freedom instead of an attempt to preserve my life. In a way that only sin can, sin generates resentment against God, against both God and his commandments for the very things that God's placed in my life to preserve me and protect me. What God gave to me for good, sin tries to make it into evil. It arouses a spirit of rebellion and then uses the law as an opportunity for that rebellion to express itself. Sin compels us then to go play in the road as a means of asserting our freedom. I'm a big boy. I can do whatever I want to do. I can correct the wrong that has been thrust on me by God. I can go do what God forbid me from doing. That's the mindset that sin puts into the mind of a sinner. The problem with that is that the commandment was never intended to harm us. It was never intended to be for our bad. But the action that we take to defy the commandment of God causes us more harm than we could ever imagine when we transgress that law of God. That's how sin works. Satan told Eve that God kept the best for himself. If you eat of that tree, you'll be just like God. It's not a bad thing. It's the most desirable tree in the garden. It has a property that no other tree in the garden has. And when you eat of it, you're going to gain something you can't get anywhere else. But what they got from the tree did them exponentially more harm than they could have ever imagined. Sin said, that mean old God, that mean old preacher, that mean old church, they tried to restrict me. They tried to hold me back. They tried to keep me from living the way I wanted to live or being what I wanted to be or doing what I wanted to do. And the sin nature takes occasion of the law and uses the law to provoke Eve to sin. And by breaking the law, she, she acts out what the sin nature has provoked her to do and she defies the very thing that was put in place to protect her. It was there for her good. It was there for her protection. Now, verse 8 ends with this statement, and I, I feel like I'm going long, but I really want to get through verse 9. How many will bear with me for just a little bit longer? Verse 8 ends with this statement. For without the law, sin was dead. It takes the law to define sin before sin has any real power. That's an important point because it leads us to verse 9. And, and, and in verse 9 we find out the sin nature was dormant. It was ineffective. It was powerless without the law. In other words, not only does the sin nature use the law as an instrument to provoke us to sin, 
The law is the only instrument that the sin nature can use. It's the only tool that it has. It takes the law to make something a crime. It takes the law to make sin a sin in the civil realm, in in the world that we live in. You can't be arrested and convicted and punished for an act that is not against a law. Now, that may be as wrong as it can be, but if there's not a law that says you can't do that, the, the man with the badge has no authority. The courts have no, no role. It may be wrong for me to steal your seat in church, but honey, there's no law against it. And as wrong as it is, you can't prosecute me. And you can't call the law and you can't have them come and arrest me and try me and convict me and punish me. The law defines what the wrong is. So sin is dead. So he said, for without the law, sin was dead. Sin is dead so long as it is without a weapon to use against me. And the only weapon that sin can use is the law. Now, this statement establishes an important truth. We are all born with a sin nature. We are all guilty because of Adam, and we are all under the curse of sin. But Paul makes it plain that the sin nature has no power to provoke us to sin. It has no power to define and legitimize sin in our lives until there is an awareness of the law. The law is the weapon that sin uses to harm us. And until we have an awareness of the law, sin is effectively dead. That's the premise upon which theologians establish an argument for an age of accountability. A child may be born with a sin nature, And a child has that nature inherent in them that rebels against authority. But the child is not accountable for sin until they have developed an awareness of the law. For without the law, sin was dead. There is a threshold somewhere in the developmental life of a person where they become aware of the law. They become aware that it is wrong to violate the law. And at that point, sin springs to life and uses the law to provoke rebellion, and the result is sin. Until that point, it's not sin. Now, one may say, then, why teach our kids right and wrong? If they're not guilty of sin until they know the difference between right and wrong, why, why if, if ignorance of the law, in effect, defangs the sin nature, then why teach right and wrong? The answer is simple. The law is written in your conscience. And if no man ever teaches you right and wrong, there's an innate human awareness of what is right and what is wrong that does not have to be taught. At some point in your life, even without moral instruction, 
at some point in your development, you cross a threshold where you know the difference between right and wrong. And at that point, you become personally accountable for your actions in regard to the law. Sin springs to life and entraps us. For without the law, sin was dead. Now Paul goes on using the personal in verse 9. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul uses the voice of the first person. This is a personal statement. He's saying there was a time in my life before the law came, before the principles of the law entered into my life, before it became effective in my life, I was alive without the law once. This notion of alive is not talking about physically alive, breathing air and having a heartbeat. It's the notion of being spiritually alive. It is to say I was alive as a statement of innocence before God. Sin results in death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And Paul's saying, there was a time in my life before the law where I was alive. There was a time in my life before sin came in. Before I was aware of the significance of the law where I was spiritually alive without the law. But then the knowledge of the law, the commandment came. The knowledge of the law entered my life. And with the commandment came the compulsion, the sin nature, to rebel against it. And when that happened, he said, sin revived. That word revived is from a Greek word that means spring to life. Sin sprung to life. It was dead. Remember in verse 8, we said sin was dead without the law. It was dead. But when the law came in, it sprung to life. And when sin sprung to life, when sin was dead, I was alive. But when sin came to life, guess what happened? I died. Now the weight of that statement is found in its support for the principle given at the end of verse 8. Paul was spiritually alive or innocent of sin before he became aware of the law. He had no conscience. He had no awareness of sin. He had no condemnation for sin. That doesn't mean he didn't do anything wrong. That doesn't mean he was a perfect child. Children rebel against authority before they even realize what authority is. That's the sin nature. But Paul said until the commandment came in, until the awareness of the law came in, he was innocent. Whatever he did, he was innocent. He was just a child. He had no awareness of the law. There was no condemnation for that rebellion as long as he was not aware of the law. But when he became aware of the law, Sin sprang to life. And when sin sprang to life, he died spiritually. That means he was no longer innocent of sin. When he learned the principles of the law, the sin nature caused him to violate the law. And he came. there was a point where he realized that the commandment not to play in the street was a moral thing. 
And he realized that if I go play in the street, I'm transgressing a moral commandment. I'm in the wrong, and that's in the right, and he decided to do it anyway. And at that point, he sinned, and he came under the dominion of sin. Sin sprung to life, and he died spiritually. So this is, the, this is where the idea of the age of accountability comes from. And I, I don't really like the terminology age of accountability because it's not really an age. You're not going to define an age and say, well, when you're eight years old, bless God, like it or not. It's, it's a developed awareness. And every child is born with a sin nature and an ignorance of the law. And every child develops that awareness at their own rate, their own pace. And as long as they are ignorant of the law, they're innocent in the eyes of God. But when they become aware of the law as it pertains to God, not just aware of right and wrong, but aware of the fact that they're transgressing God. When they become aware of the law as it pertains to God, they lose their innocence. And they become guilty of transgressing the law. When they're innocent, they're alive. When they become guilty, they become spiritually Dead. When they're alive without the law, sin lies dormant within them. It is dead. They still have a sin nature, but the sin nature is a killer without a weapon. It's a murderer without a weapon. But at the moment that the consciousness of the law enters the picture, the sin nature is empowered. It now has the only weapon that sin can use, the law. And now it is a killer with a weapon, and it produces spiritual death. It uses the law to end that age of innocence and brings a subject under the condemnation of the law of God, which results in spiritual death. Now, I know I'm coming quickly to a close, but I want to point out a second principle that, that, is, that is inherent in all of this. The, 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 the whole passage, talking about being dead without the law, and then being alive once and then sin becoming revived and then being dead demonstrates that life in the Spirit is directly related to sin. Life in the Spirit and spiritual death are directly related to the condition of sin. Sin was dead without the law and I was alive. And then sin sprung to life and I died. Spiritual life thrives where sin is dead. And when sin is revived, spiritual life dies. That underscores the importance of chapter 6, where we talked about why a believer can't continue to live in sin. A believer has to walk in the Spirit, has to live life in the Spirit, because it's the only way to maintain spiritual life. To enter back into a life of sin is to revive sin. And when sin is revived, I die. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? The thrust of this passage, which we've only covered partially this morning, is to cause us to come to the recognition of the sinfulness of sin. I mean, really, you have to, at some point in your life, you have to realize that the law of God is not the culprit in your life. Sin is. 
And as long as we can blame all of our actions on somebody else, as long as we can point our finger at the law and see the law as the culprit in our lives, we'll never deal with the real issue. And the real issue that needs to be dealt with is the fact that we are sinners. We transgressed the law. We broke the law of God. We sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God until we recognize that there's no hope of salvation. You can't be saved until you first recognize that you're a sinner. You can't be saved until you first come to that place of repentance for your sins. And so this whole passage about the law is to, is to help us to turn the focus to the right place. The problem is not with God. The problem is not with the law. We live in a generation where every kind of sin, moral wrong, can be explained by somebody else's behavior. Kids murder their parents and get off in court because mom and dad were mean to them. The murder's on my hands. It doesn't matter what anybody else did. I'm a sinner. And I am personally accountable. And so what this is about, it's about removing the law as, as the culprit and causing us to see the sinfulness of sin. What I did violated the character of God. What I did violated the nature of God. I am a sinner. And I need the grace of God. I wonder if on a Sunday morning if we could take a moment in recognition of the way sin works and understanding that even as a believer I am not immune to the way sin works. Even now sin tugs and pulls at me towards unrighteousness by appealing to me that that which is forbidden to me somehow is attractive to me. And tries to use the law, the occasion of the law, as a means and a method to get me to enter into that second state where sin springs to life.